Hey everybody, before we get into the show, I wanted to let you know we've got another live show coming up. We will be back at Maya Cinemas on Thursday, May 23rd for Furiosa, the latest in the Mad Max series. We are so excited for this one. Joining me to talk about it, we've got Sam Novak, Shahab Zargari, and Tony Gonzalez. A great lineup. It's going to be an awesome movie. We are so excited to talk about it. So make sure to check the show notes. There are opportunities to win tickets. You could also buy tickets. And we hope to see you there Thursday, May 23rd, 6 p.m. at Maya Cinemas for Furiosa. Right, welcome to another episode of Piecing It Together, the podcast where we take a look at a new movie and try to figure out what movies inspired it. And today on the show, it's actually a special episode. Joining me is Joe Black, a filmmaker who has been here on Piecing It Together many times over the last few years to help me piece together new movies. But he has a new movie out. Uh, it's called Natasha Hall. It's currently in the festival circuit at the time of this recording. Uh, it just had a screening here in Las Vegas at Fort Bedlam. Uh, it's actually the second screening it's had at Fort Bedlam, uh, along with some other screenings he's had around the country. And we decided to get together and talk about the movie. We, of course, get into some puzzle pieces for the movie, but also we talk about the making of the film, what it means to him, and about his process as a filmmaker. So we get into a lot of great stuff behind the scenes of the making of this film natasha hall which you will all hopefully be able to see very soon we will definitely let you know when you are able to watch it but if you're hearing this before the film is out it should still be an interesting conversation about indie filmmaking and uh we hope you enjoy it so before we get to the conversation with joe i do want to remind you as always to make sure you are subscribed to piecing it together wherever you listen to podcasts you can rate and review us over on apple Podcasts or spotify or Podchaser and good pods those are kind of the four big rate and review places so uh go ahead and drop the five stars it's really nice when you do that you could also follow us on social media at piecing pod and join our facebook group popcorn and puzzle pieces where we continue the conversation about all the movies we talk about here on the show. And don't forget about our Produced by David Rosen Patreon, where you can find bonus and advanced content from Piecing It Together, as well as Awesome Movie Year, which is another movie podcast I produce, and stuff from my music career. Lots of great content over there on the Produced by David Rosen Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Rosen. Check it out. So let's talk to Joe Black about his new film, Natasha Hall. Joe Black is with me in person today for the first time. Joe, how's it going? It's it's crazy seeing behind the curtain, you know? Yeah. It's very Wizard of Oz. It turns out you're just an old man with a pocket watch the whole time. <laughs> I am an old man. That's actually very true. <laughs> uh, Joe is here because last night uh, he had a screening of his new film, Natasha Hall, here in Las Vegas. And we're going to talk about the movie. Oh yeah, yeah. It was it was wonderful. I came out and did a screening in December mm-hmm. at Fort Bedlam, and and you were the only one there. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there was one older gentleman who uh, who walked out halfway through, and he did like the like knife cut across the throat motion with his thumb to like the guy's own like ooh, you know. And I was like, yeah. All right. But uh, yeah, um, William uh, Powell, right? That's yeah. his name. He helped us do some promotion for it this time. Uh, the Fort Bedlam people asked us back, and we. We had, I would call that sold out for Fort Bedlam. Yeah, it was it was packed. A lot of people. It was, it yeah. was great. I told Kat when I got off the phone with her, you know, I was like, we had 16 times the amount of people tonight and only four walkouts. So only four times the amount of walkouts. So that's like a good, it's a good ratio, you know? Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, being invited to come back to Vegas for this, to, to do another screening at a place you had done, I mean, there must have felt pretty good to be asked to come back to do something yeah i mean as an artist you're always like um 
you 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 can't hear when people say good things like because you're just you, you know what i mean like yeah. like and 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 you only you only think like oh they were just being nice or whatever because the fort bedlam guys afterward they're like oh that was great but i'm like yeah yeah, yeah. sorry mm-hmm. sorry to waste your time guys <laughs> but then they hit me up like a week later and they were like we really love that we want more people to see it, and we want to promote it better this time like would you be willing to come back and the, the fact that they asked us to come back yeah like that really meant a lot that would that you know that that's one of those things that like even even that denial part of your artist brain can't deny that. Sure. Like, okay, well, like, wouldn't add. I mean, because nobody came. You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. So that was that was really cool, and um, it, you know, it, it's uh, it's my f- fifth time, yeah, seeing it with an audience, and and it's it's interesting the way it lands every time. And I learned that there are two jokes that are consistently uh, every screening. It's the when she says, when he's like, oh, Jude Miller get back together? And she goes, does it look like I have a dick? Yeah, yeah. That like lands really hard. Sure. And then there's a moment at the end when one character reveals that she's killed somebody like over the phone. And that got a huge laugh last night. And as much as like you worry that people aren't digging the movie and all that, that line specifically where the character reveals she's killed someone, mm. that doesn't land unless people are in it. Right. They have to be invested at that point. And that's like, two hours into the movie yeah you know what i mean and and so like that's that you know that you know but still the denial part of my brain is like why aren't they laughing at the funny jokes all right whatever yeah you know but but it was it was really it's it's always a pleasure so so i will obviously get into this being piecing it together we'll get into some of your inspirations along the way here uh but i want to start off by asking you uh first question here you know, th- this film, Natasha Hall, has got this kind of like dual story elements going through it between being like a detective noir, but also being about this creative person and where the impetus for mixing those two things together came from. I think that, um, you know, I read one time that uh, I, I might not have even read it. I might have been speaking with Shane Black where he's like, writers love movies about detectives mm. because detectives are writers sure you know like detectives are they're interested in people mm-hmm. and they like figuring out the plot and they like you know what i mean and like you know so i've I, i've been interested in the detective genre for a minute for sure. obvious reasons and i and i loved the idea of making a movie about someone who is interested in people but the movie itself is interested in her right right and she's got all these outlets to keep herself from actually like exploring her herself right and and being an artist i only know one way to explore myself and that's through the art that i make Mm -hmm. so i thought it would be i thought it would be kind of an a a nice i don't know if juxtaposition is the right word but that like while trying to like solve this case while trying to like you know help others out she herself is having like creative blocks sure like and and like trying to write that song the whole movie like finding the melody for it and then also her writing this book about Switchblade Sue, and it's not until she finally just stops with the facade and admits that Switchblade Sue is her, right? You right. know that that she can kind of work through it and come to the conclusion of this book that's four hundred pages long at this point because she doesn't know how to end it. Sure. And Natasha herself is drawn to artists. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's implied in the movie, she comes from a musician father. She talks about like her dad loving music so much that it was all he cared about you know mm. so she has this real resentment toward art yeah you know and um and i mean all that is you know in a way like to an extent me exploring not only myself but also the struggle that i see a lot of my creative friends in la going through that they won't kind of like that they're they're afraid to unearth the things they need to unearth to, yeah you yeah know. so that yeah i mean it's I don't want to call it a cop out. I just want to, you know, like I have to make something easy on myself, I suppose, in a movie like <laughs> sure. this. But. Well, you know, getting a couple of puzzle pieces out of the way right here, uh, just to sum of what you were speaking of right there. I'm pretty sure we've talked about this movie before, but I, I thought a little bit about uh, Martin McDonough's Seven Psychopaths as far as her writing a story while also getting involved in a whole, you know, crime thing at the same time. We have talked about that movie before. I that's I forget what one it was on, but I remember, yeah, because it talked about, like, Tom Waits, like, mm, is why sure. I saw that movie. And then you told me that that wasn't even his original casting choice, and I went, you can tell. Yeah, yeah. Like, you could tell he wasn't that cool <laughs> right. to think of Tom first. Um, wow, that's funny. Yeah, I haven't seen that movie since the week it came out uh-huh. because I was really looking forward to it and then it just didn't land for me. Mm. You know what I mean? None of his movies actually really do. Right. Um, uh, Three Billboards is another one that like everybody, you know, 
was was in love with it and i and for me it it just didn't it just didn't hit the target but his brother his brother makes films uh-huh. and those are actually much more in tune with inspirations like um he made a film called the war on everyone okay with uh michael pena and uh alex uh Alexander Skarsgård. Yeah. Like that's actually much more in tune and the movie The Guard with Don Cheadle and, and I never saw The Guard. Yeah, it's great. Like yeah. like those those are actually I'm actually more drawn to to the those films even though I'm not crazy about them either. Mm-hmm. I I love The War on Everyone, I can't lie. But what I like is they th- those movies to me seem to take a genre and kind of like they know that you're into the genre so they're not going to play into any of the tropes. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's a buddy cop movie. Yeah. Moving on, you know. Um that 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 actually is much more of an influence in a way. Okay. Um. But you know, it coming up now a second time. I guess I'm gonna have to rewatch Seven Psychopaths. Sure. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, know. actually, I'm gonna need to too. At the time, I loved that movie. Mm-hmm. I just haven't seen it in a while either. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, I absolutely loved it when I when I first saw it. But I, I do want to get back to you. You're already kind of starting to talk about it a little bit, but um. At the screening yesterday, you you did mention during your uh, your introduction about how this is a film, you know, about the character, about the detective. You you mentioned uh, Fletch or Axel Foley, but not about the story that they get involved in necessarily. And just if you could like kind of talk about that a little bit more. Well, well, I think about like you know, I, I, Beverly Hills Cop is a bit of a bad example because it's just such. A, I really think that that movie's perfect. Yeah, like I think that's a perfect. Hollywood movie. Yeah. But like, what do you remember about Beverly Hills Cop? The character. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Same thing with Fletch. You know yeah. what I mean? Like Fletch, the plot for Fletch is, you know, both movies have a very simple setup. You know, Axel Foley, his friend was killed and he has to find him. And then Fletch is like, I've been hired by this millionaire to kill him and that's weird. Right. Like, you know what I mean? Like that's, the, the and but that's really it. You just remember more the character and the set pieces, I suppose. Yeah. But being, you know, we don't have money for set pieces. <laughs> you know, <laughs> sure. like my set pieces, she's going to run mm. down the street and yeah. the sun is coming up. It looks like, good, though. Oh, so. thanks. Yeah, well, we actually <laughs> shot that at sunrise. Nice. We, we did, we actually did, uh, we had to shoot that scene at 5 a.m. when the sun's coming up. And two days in a row, we... We we planned to shoot the scene under the bridge that follows immediately after it. Mm. But the first day we planned on shooting, it, we had a five a.m. call time. The actor just didn't show up mm. to shoot the scene, so we had to shoot Natasha running with this car that we had. Then the second time we went to shoot it, we went to the bridge, and there was another film crew under the bridge shooting a TV show that day or something. So we couldn't shoot that day, and so we shot more Natasha running. Wow! But then that guy who had that car that we were using for those scenes was such an asshole. That we ended up, I was like, man, I don't like this guy. We haven't gotten all the footage we need, so we're just going to reshoot that stuff anyway. Okay. So we, it took four mornings to shoot that scene. But, but yeah, I, I, I personally, like, you know, I come from a Cassavetes, Robert Altman, you know, sure. kind of angle. And, um, you know, something like The Long Goodbye, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, The Long Goodbye is a huge influence yeah. on this movie. I mean, yeah. like, but I mean, what detective movie made after 1973 isn't influenced by The Long Goodbye? Sure. You, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, that's not, it's almost not even fair. But yeah, and in Inherent Vice, I think, was like even more of an influence in a way. On my list here. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Inherent Vice, when I pitched this to people, I told them it was Inherent Vice meets Jackie Brown. Yeah. Um, because Jackie Brown, I mean, Tarantino, I, I just got to get it out of the way. Like, he's, he's the best at what he does. He right. really is. You know, right. and he's, he's the best at making a movie that an audience understands mm-hmm. and embraces. Mm-hmm. You know, and Paul Thomas Anderson is on the opposite side of that spectrum in a way that, like, his movies are very challenging to audiences. Even, like, even sophisticated audiences. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, so I'm trying to, like, find that middle ground because that's, that's what's interesting to me. Sure. You know what I mean? And, um... Jackie Brown is so perfectly plotted that it feels like a ride, you know, and Inherent Vice is so loosely plotted (laughs) that like, I I think I've told you this story where I went to a screening of it uh, about a year after it came out uh, on film. It was a screening on film. And when it went from about an hour and a half into the movie, it jumped to the next reel and there was a reel missing. I was like, what the <laughs> fuck? Like, and I turned to people, I was like, dude, they, they cut the, and they're like, what? And I'm like, they skipped ahead and nobody knew what I was talking about. I go outside and I tell the guy in the lobby, I'm like, yo, guys, like, there's like, you missed a reel or something. And he's like, I don't know about that. But I was like, whatever. So I go back in there and then the movie keeps playing. When it jumps to the next reel, it jumps to the reel that was missing. Huh. Like, so I guess they had flopped them, right? Wow. And I was like, what the fuck? You know, 
And then when it was over and I was saying to everybody, she's like, did you notice that like those two reels were, and everyone's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, what? Am I going crazy? Because I've seen the movie a hundred times. I go outside, the guy in the line was like, dude, you were right. We flopped reels five and six. Sorry about that. And I was like, yo, 230 people didn't notice. Right, like, right. And the movie still worked. <laughs> like, um, my movie's not like that at all. Like, like, if you move scenes around Natasha Hall, it'd be even more confusing. Yeah, right. But, but yeah, that was, you know, and when the pandemic, I... I've been wanting to make a detective movie ever since seeing Inherent Vice, really. Yeah. Like, and and um, I made one a couple of years ago that you saw, Tellers. Mm. Um, but I wanted to kind of, I don't like to use the word subvert the genre because that's not what I'm talking about. You know, I, I more just want to explore the things that haven't been explored. Mm. So my first detective movie was a movie about a retired detective who the case he's solving, he doesn't even know if there's a case. Mm. It's kind of, it was kind of like a reverse Columbo. <laughs> Because, like, Columbo is another huge influence on Natasha Hall, where Columbo, the, the, the strategy, have you ever seen Columbo? No, no, I don't think I ever actually have. It's, it's really cool, because the way the show is structured, first of all, the episodes are like an hour and 20 minutes long. Wow. And the way it's structured is you spend the first 20 minutes with the killer, mm. watching them commit the crime. And then Columbo comes in after the first commercial break and spends the next hour trying to, like, you know, catch the killer. Right. And... It's an interesting, it almost makes Columbo like the bad guy in a way, you know what I mean? Because you're invested in this person's story and here comes Columbo along trying to screw everything up for him. Right. And the writers of Columbo described it that they were tired of uh, whodunits mm. and they wanted to create a genre called How Catch'ems. <clears throat> you know what I mean? It's, nice. it's the, the, the show is about how Columbo catches somebody, not who is Columbo going to catch. Mm -hmm. And so when I made Tellers, my idea was to be like, instead of making a, who done it or how catch him? I wanted to make a movie about did it happen? Mm. Because the character, it looks like he committed suicide, and the only person who is kind of sus suspect about it is is his grandfather, who was estranged from him. Mm -hmm. So his grandfather is trying to like, am I just projecting right. my you know, like like my anger at myself for not being there for him, or did somebody actually fucking kill him? Right. And um, I was, you know, that movie, that was the toughest movie I've ever made. And, and afterward, I, I, I felt like there was still more I wanted to explore detectives. And I learned that to be a detective in real life, you have to have 2,000 logged hours of some kind of surveillance job. Hmm. Like, and one of those jobs you can have is uh, to apply for your license. Right. And one of those jobs you can have is a repo man. Hmm. And for years, I've always had this idea of doing a, a movie about a girl who repossesses cars, like a tough, badass, you know, repo, sure. repo girl. And I know there's a movie Repo Chick, but I never saw it because, like, you know, yeah. but anyways, <laughs> but I was like, oh, that would be cool. Like, like a female detective who kind of fell into it because repoing cars wasn't paying enough, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, my wife, uh, we weren't married at the time. We were, we were engaged at the time, but she was looking for... Uh, an agent she's an actress and she um she asked like what two actresses do you think i'm like you can combine to like you know make me you know so like, she could pitch herself and i told her she was like rebecca hall and natasha leone and she was like oh so natasha hall and i was like whoa wow yeah <laughs> and originally it was it was supposed to be you know um the script i was just gonna make it because it was during lockdown i was just gonna make this like i wanted to make like a 90 minute clerk's kind of hangout movie mm -hmm. about this kind of like you know new jersey broad yeah. stuck at this house you know what i mean and it was gonna be breezy funny you know whatever and then i sat down to write it and i i write a script usually it takes a week mm -hmm. to get a first draft you know what i mean once i start you know clicking at the keys this took four months hmm. because i i realized and it, it made me realize i'm not interested in making those kinds of movies anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to watch those kinds of movies. You know yeah. what I mean? But, like, I'm more interested... Somebody once described my movie Low Town that I made a few years ago, which I think you saw that one, too, right? No, I haven't seen Low Town. With the Diamond Heist? Yeah, no, I haven't seen okay. that. Okay. Somebody watched that movie, and they described the movie as a tie-dye color vortex that gets darker and darker the further you spin down. Okay. I couldn't tell if they meant that as a good thing or a bad thing, but <laughs> yeah. I loved that. Yeah, it sounds good. So, like, even if it wasn't good, that meant that, ooh, if I, if I kind of, like, can capture that on purpose, like, mm -hmm. you know, intentionally, I can honor that intention the whole movie, and it'll, you know what I mean? And I actually gave that line to Natasha in... um in this movie, she describes L.A. as a tie-dye color vortex. That yeah, gets yeah. Sucked down. 
That's actually inspired by a deleted scene from Chasing Amy, huh. where Kevin Smith used a review for Mallrats for the opening scene to Chasing Amy, where somebody's criticizing Ben Affleck's comic book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, ha- I have Kevin Smith on here as well. And I mean, it, you know, it, I feel like in an alternate timeline where Kevin Smith continued making interesting films about interesting characters, <laughs> maybe it could turn into something like this. You yeah, know? yeah. I mean, like, you know, I, and I, he's, he's the filmmaker that, that, Dogma is the movie that made me want to be a filmmaker. Yeah. I was uh, 13 years old. I was staying with my aunt for Christmas in her pool house. And my cousin had Dogma on DVD and I watched it. And in that two week span, I watched it twice a day, every day. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when I realized I want to be a filmmaker. I knew that I wanted to be involved in film my whole life, but I was going to be an actor. Yeah. Like that was my angle. Because when you're a little kid, you don't know what the fuck a director does. You know what I mean? But I didn't like acting. Yeah. You know, I did it all the time. I was in plays. I was, in, you know, but, but that really, you know, and I became an acolyte of Kevin Smith's. And I defended that, his work all the way up through Tusk. I actually think Tusk is maybe his like second best movie. Mm. Like, and, and I, I, I loved Cop Out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I, I really did. I, I saw that I went to the midnight premiere of Cop Out. I was living in Tallahassee, Florida at the time. Halfway through the movie, I turned to my girlfriend. I was like, "We gotta go." I feel like you've somehow managed to bring up Cop Out as a puzzle piece on piecing it together, which is kind of funny. Like, Cop Out inspired something. You know oh, I mean? absolutely, yeah. though. Like, like, but I did. I turned to her. I was like, "We gotta leave." She's like, "It's not that bad." I was like, "No, dude, I, I, I can't watch this without my dad." <laughs> Yeah. So the next day, I drove two and a half hours home mm-hmm. after work and went and saw a cop out with my dad. Yeah, and he loved it. To this day, he quotes that movie. Wow! You know, Tracy Morgan dresses his cell phone. Where he's like, "Use me to call your mother." <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> yeah. It's. Uh, have you seen Cop Out? You know, I don't remember if I actually watched it or not. I feel like I might have not seen it because you know, obviously, it was just trashed immediately on release. See, and yeah. that's the kind of thing that really bothered me about kevin smith's work is that like he was right that it was kind of the thing that like he wasn't taken seriously and then with all the bad press about what happened making cop out Mm. it had no chance and it came out the same year as the other guys oh yeah you know what i mean and like i remember when the other guys came out i think it was richard roper who like his little blurb on rotten tomatoes was like note to kevin smith this is how you make a buddy (laughs) cop movie and honestly the other guys was the first time where i went Adam McKay might not be a good filmmaker. Right. <laughs> like, I actually think that movie's terrible. Yeah. Like, really terrible. But Cop Out, I'm like, the performances are good. The jokes, they're not like huge, stupid gags, but like, there's a moment where they're in a house and Bruce Willis hears Tracy Morgan scream downstairs and Bruce Willis runs and he falls down the stairs. He's like, oh, fuck. Mm-hmm. And he gets up and he walks into the kitchen where Tracy Morgan's being held hostage. And the bad guy goes, dude, did you just fall down the stairs? And Bruce Willis goes, no. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> um, that's ridiculous. I, I do have a thing for underdog movies, you know, where, where like, I, you know, I try to see someone's intention and how much they, they committed to honoring the intention mm-hmm. because skill is whatever, you know yeah. what I mean? When it comes to being an artist, I think skill is, is something that's, you know, either funded or, or learned, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? But like your intention is what matters the most to me because sure. I think some of the best made movies, it was John Cassavetes who said, um, the most the the most technically perfect things in our industry are commercials, <laughs> right? You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Like you know, and 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 there's there's a lot of power in that statement. I I kind of stick to that statement because when you're a DIY filmmaker, the one thing you come up against, no matter how good your movie is or how bad it is, without fail, every time somebody's like, oh, you know, if only you know you had more money, or like, oh, you know, like some of the acting, blah blah, blah. and it's like, thanks, like all the things completely out of my control. No. Yeah. And Cassavetes has another brilliant quote about that where he says, um, he talks about like a car. He's like, imagine a car and you and your buddies spend four years in a garage making a car from spare parts and like building it together, you know, and, and, uh, and then somebody goes and buys a car off of a factory and they drive it and it's fun, you know, whatever. Then they come and they ride in our car and like the gear shift sticks a little bit and it's kind of bumpy, you know, whatever. And then you say to them, what did you think of it? And they say, well, again, it's a little, it's a little bumpy. The gear shift sticks, blah, blah, blah. And Cassavetes was like, but I just want to yell at him, but what about the car? (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's a life to imperfection, Mm -hmm. as long as what you're doing has purpose. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's certain filmmakers that are on the same level as me or slightly higher. We've, uh, you've talked about them. I try not to talk about people like Jim Cummings, Mm. who I just, I'm not buying it. You know what I mean? There's a lack of sincerity. There's too much ego in it. There's too much, you know, and and so their 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 um shortcomings on the production level 
to me are revealing hmm. in a way. You know what I mean? But then there's certain filmmakers, like I just saw this, what was it called? 60, Scary at 61, the Scare of 61. I can't remember the name. I, I don't know. But this. it's a brilliant, it's a, it, 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 it's a movie about two girls who move into Jeffrey Epstein's old apartment. Oh, yeah, yeah, the Dasha something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. like and it's, it's, you know, not shot very well, and, like, the acting is, you know, whatever. Yeah. But, like, it's such a, like, like the idea is so sincere, and the, the, the idea of making it is so sincere that it's infectious. Mm. There's another film called Midnight Skater that you would absolutely love that I bought in, like, one of those 10 DVD packs at Walmart for $5. <laughs> yeah. These kids shot it at Kent State on a high 8 camera mm. just for fun over the course of a school year. And it's about a serial killer on the loose at a school while simultaneously a new drug developed in the chem lab that's turning everybody into zombies. Oh, nice. And it's, it's literally kids shooting it on their mom's handicam, and it's almost two hours long. I've shown that movie to 15 people in my life, and they all own it now. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, where did I go there? <laughs> <laughs> it was a, yeah, it was a bit of a tangent. I'm not quite sure, but... Uh, well, more to the puzzle pieces. Uh-huh. I, can, you know, I can jump right in with another one if, you know, like... Um, I, I, the, um, keeping with the Cassavetes, mm-hmm. he, um, he worked with his wife, Jenna Rollins a lot. And, yeah. um, I actually had the honor of working with Jenna on her last film. Like I, right. I got to direct her in her last film. She saw a film of mine called Jenna, um, no relation. And, um, she liked it so much that her assistant Dakota had written this short film and they asked me to, uh, direct it. Yeah. So I got to direct Jenna in her final. So so cool. It really is. Like it's it's one of the few it like like, you know, even if like I never get to make a movie for more than, you know, the money I borrow from my mom. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that's I've made a movie with Jenna Rollins. Right. You know right. what I mean? But they, she made a film with him called Gloria, which is about a mob mall whose neighbor gets killed by the mob and like she ends up with the neighbor's like little boy and they're on the run together cuz the little boy has like a book the, <laughs> of like, you know, info about the mob on him. Okay. And the movie unfolds in such a, like, it's it's Cassavetti's most, like, movie movie. It's the most plot-driven movie that he made. But when you watch it, it's so, it's so Cassavetti's, where, like, the ending is, like, a 10-minute long scene where she's talking to this mob boss kind of about nothing, and you know that they have a past together, and, like, it's a weird, you know what I mean? It's it's very, it's about Gloria, and that's why it's called Gloria. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and that was kind of the idea for Natasha Hall, too. When I met Kat... Um, I met my wife, she was in a play that a friend of mine directed, and she had that same quality that Jenna Rollins has, where she's like, no nonsense. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. she, she's a tough woman. Yeah. You know, but also, like, how do I say this without sounding, I mean, why am I even worried about it? She's also very feminine. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, there's, there's, like, there's a very feminine quality to both of them. Like, um... John Cassavetes used to use his own money to make his movies. That was his whole thing. He would use the money he made and he'd put mortgages on his house and sell pianos and sure. like and he, you know Jenna was cool with that and she said the only thing that I ever want to make sure we always have money for is for me to get my hair done. Nice. You know, and she has that like this iconic poofy blonde, you know, like and Cat is very similar in that like she's very supportive of like yeah, we got to do what we got to do, you know what I mean? She's not like I want to get my hair done. She's like literally like I just want to make sure we have a roof over our head. Right. But, but, you know, this movie, I've made a lot of movies before. Um, this is my 14th. And I've had the full spectrum of actors in my movies where it's like, you know, from relatives who you need, you know, to your friends, to me being in a lot of them, sure. you know, or having to do it, to um, aspiring actors or people who are like seasoned actors. Like I've gotten to work with John Grice and E.G. Daly and Corinne Bohr, Ron Thompson. But then... The one actor type of actor I've never quite worked with is the Sonic Boom, mm-hmm. which is like the person who's about to fucking explode. Yeah, you know, the person. Who's, and honestly, what drew me to my wife just as a person in general was that when I saw her in that play, I was like, "Oh, there it is." Right, right. She had never done a movie before, though, so making Natasha Hall was kind of interesting because it's like, will that read well on camera? Sure. And when we made this movie, there was only it was during lockdown, so like we we kept it small, we kept it safe, right? So on set every day, there's me, the cinematographer, focus puller, uh, my first AD, and a sound person, and my wife, six of us. That's yeah. it. And there's scenes, like when she's on the telephone, where like we're spinning around her, you know what I mean? The camera's dollying back and forth and sliding. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking in the monitor with the focus puller, these close-ups of Kat and how she's looking at somebody off screen or something. 
and we're like looking at each other just like how the hell is she doing this yeah you know how is how is like what is going on here and what's really nice is that the movie isn't for everybody you know um the trailer sells it as Beverly Hills Cop, you know, what I mean? <laughs> sure. and, and to me, that's what the movie really is. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to be like misguiding or anything like that. Like, that's like the Inherent Vice trailer, the Inherent Vice trailer with the, you know, don't know much about history. You know, yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, it sold it as like a fun, you know, romp. And it is after you see it six times. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that like even people who don't quite care for the film, Kat's performance keeps them there. Yeah. You know what I mean? I feel, I guess, a little bit like maybe I didn't honor it as much as I could, how good her performance was, you know, but I'm learning, Mm. you know what I mean? Writing is much more my strong suit at this point than directing, but because when you're writing, Woody Allen talks about this, um, when you're writing, you're sitting there on your typewriter and everything is perfect. Right. Everything is wonderful. Everything is miraculous. And you're just like, well, look at this masterpiece that I've just come out with. <laughs> right, yeah. And then when you watch your first cut, you go, what did I do? Right. <laughs> like, right. what did I do to it? What I, you know, but directing is more fun for me because I love collaborating. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and almost in a weird like being a director is a little too much like playing god for me. Mm-hmm. Like so I have like reservations about it, but I got to admit it is kind of fun to get to be the filter. To like be like, yes, give me all of your ideas. Yeah, yeah. Now they're mine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Cuz they're through this lens, you know sure, what I mean? Sure, sure. But like but I I feel like I'm getting closer and closer every time and this working relationship with this DP uh, Josh Kiara, um, it was really tough. Like mm-hmm. we're we're good friends, and and we we butted heads like crazy. We're talking like literally kicking rocks in certain instances. You know what I mean? Getting so frustrated, pulling the plug halfway through the day on certain days. Yeah. But like, it's interesting because my look is very colorful, very fun, very like Almodovar's look. You know, very bright, very colorful. I you know, and um. Pedro Almodovar. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> another puzzle piece. Uh, let's pick one. Uh, the skin I live in. Sure. Um, there we go. Um, but Josh, his his work is very dark mm. and very like dreary and very like you know like like ugly in a in a good way. You know what I mean? Like very. Yeah. Like, and I I thought that it would be an interesting combination because that tie dye color vortex thing idea sure. that like if somebody who inherently leans toward the dark is shooting a movie for somebody like me who inherently leads toward light. Mm-hmm. That might be really interesting. And like Woody Allen and Gordon Willis, when they shot Annie Hall and when they shot you know, Manhattan, I think that that combination of Gordon Willis's dark, gritty realism mixed with Woody Allen's romantic Hollywood fantasies right, right. created something interesting. And I really love, I really love uh, the way Natasha Hall looks. And Josh is much more of an objective... Uh, an objective filmmaker where like he shows you what's going on. He yeah. gives you information as an audience. And me, I am the complete opposite side. I'm a subjective filmmaker where mm-hmm. everything is is determined by what the character is experiencing or feeling. Yeah. Like I, I don't like the Spielbergian type of filmmaking, which not a criticism against Spielberg, who you know I hate. But that like <laughs> I don't want a movie to tell me how to feel. Mm-hmm. I want a movie to tell me how it's feeling. Yeah. You know well, what I mean? Well, this leads really well into a question that I had for you because, uh, I mean, we were talking earlier about, you know, how challenging a film like this can be. And, you know, when you have a character who who is imagining things with her creativity side and everything, um, I mean, uh, what are some of the push and pull challenges for you as a filmmaker to make sure the audience is along for that and what is and what isn't? Yeah, that, that actually is a better segue than you could even uh, think, uh, yeah. honestly, because that was part of the working with Josh. Josh right. is a much more visual kind of guy. Like, he likes to do the uh, the tricks and the tricks. You know, that's the kind of stuff he kind of gets off on creatively. Yeah. And with Natasha, I knew that we were going to make a movie about one person stuck in certain places. And, yeah. you, and after making something, you, you need to open that up in a way. You know what I mean? And if she's on the phone, she's on the phone so much in this movie. Oh, yeah. Right? That like, <laughs> oh, yeah. <he's- laughs> so like what you have to do to keep that interesting and to, and, and to, keep, it sub- and to keep it subjective, mm-hmm. like is you have, to, you have to visualize her thoughts and her emotional ebbs and flows. So for example, the first scene when she's on the phone with Bandini. Mm-hmm. The, the cop that she calls, the crooked cop, once she starts to suspect that he's maybe not on the level, sure, 
that's when suddenly the score kicks in. The and she starts to manifest this this image of him in the room with with um the gangster that she's afraid of, mm. right? Um and Colin Walsh. And so, but Natasha, she's not stupid. You know what I mean? And she's kind of a, a wise ass. You know what I mean? You sure. get that throughout the whole thing. So I, I in my mind, I'm like, okay, so she almost playfully in her head is imagining him as this ridiculous film noir type character. Sure. So what do you do? You have him in the room, you have him in black and white, you literally have him polished, you know, nickel plated, you know, guns. And yeah. like, we've got like, we've got Colin Walsh looking like somebody out of Casablanca, you know what I mean? With his ascot and his head, you know, like, mm-hmm. and so for Josh, that's a lot of fun because he gets to do the black and white characters in the, you know, the coloring and stuff like that. And that's where he comes from with it. And for me, it's like, all right, but how is that what she's thinking? So like this scene where, She's imagining everybody in the room, uh, like as she's figuring out solving the case, and they're all like standing around her and stuff like that. Yeah, like you know, you, there's so many components to what that scene is. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because you know, it's it's an interrogation. It's also her venting her frustrations. Yeah, it's also her feeling like she's in the vortex. You know what I mean? So that spinning and that, you know, it's a manifestation of how she's feeling. Yeah. But none of that is more evident than in the scenes with Bobby on the phone. Mm. So the first scene you have with her, she calls this guy Bobby, for those of you who haven't seen it, who she's got this evidence to take down the mob. She doesn't know who to turn to. So she calls this dude who she met a few years ago at a Star Trek convention. Yeah. Who's a reporter, but he works in arts and entertainment. Yeah. But she calls him at his office. And this is when she's feeling all out of control. So the way we shoot the scene is in a split screen and it's single take, but it's split screen. One side, Bobby, one side, Natasha. Bobby's split screen, he is, it's a static shot wide of him at his desk. Natasha, it's following her around in an extreme close, but we zoomed in from across the room, so it's an extreme close punched in, so it feels like chaos. Mm-hmm. So he starts to listen to her. He's the first character that listens to her and understands her, and she, it's the first time in the movie that she feels heard and seen. So the camera on her side is zooming backwards while his side is zooming in. Right. But he's staying static. He's not moving anywhere. So his shot is just this perfectly like still zoom. And as it gets closer and closer to him, he's it lands with him in a close-up, looking eyeline directly at Natasha's frame. Yeah. Right? Like her side of frame. And Natasha is now in a wide, sitting down, and more stable and comfortable. Mm. So she's feeling that connection with Bobby, right? So then when we go to the next phone call that they have later and she's talking with them on the phone, it's the only phone call in the whole movie where I cut back and forth between her and the person she's on the phone with mm-hmm. because she feels on an even level with Bobby at this point, okay, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the more she starts to feel disconnected from Bobby, the more abstract his coverage becomes until finally when she, the last four minutes of the phone call, you don't see him anymore. Mm. She doesn't feel there with him anymore, you know? And it's... Is that an answer to your question? I mean, it is. It is. But the film also uh, gets a little weirder as it goes, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so it definitely you need the audience to continue to stay along with it and knowing, you know, what exactly is going on by the end. What, 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 what is uh, specifically weirder? I would say pretty much once she leaves that house and uh, continues, you know, on, on her journey when she's, she's off on the run and she <laughs> ends up running into uh, the guy by the bridge and, you know, ends up eventually going back to the girl. And, and that's a very strange, you know, exchange. Yeah. Like, there's, it, it's getting wilder as it goes. That's when the movie, uh, comes back on. Yeah. Like, like if you notice that in the opening scene of the movie, like we've got like Natasha with her like seventies cop music, as she's like, you know, and it's because, again, keeping everything subjective is the hardest part of this movie. Yeah. Because, like, uh, like so when Natasha's, like, you know, snooping around, this whole detective thing she really just fell into because she needed more money than repoing was paying for, mm-hmm. right? So, like, she, in her mind, it's, like, playful. She's She thinks of 70s cop shows. Like, that's what she thinks of when she thinks detectives, you know? So you've got the 70s cop music playing and shit yeah. like that. So the scene when she finally leaves the house, when the guy shows up and she, like, jumps out the window and she has her gun even, like, the music's kicking in. She's got her gun. She drops her gun. The music stops. Yeah. She runs back, picks it back up. It kicks back in because she's oh, back yeah. into cop mode. You know what I mean? <laughs> so that's when the movie starts yeah, back up. Absolutely. Once she gets to the house, which is the, the middle, it's basically the middle hour. Like, the movie's two hours long. The first half hour is the setup. The last half hour is, like, the movie, if you will. The middle is, like, her 
I've had this idea for years. This seems like a little bit of a tangent, but it's not. I've had this idea for years where, like, in every spy movie, they've got, like, 30 hours before the bad guy's going to blow up the world, mm-hmm. and they have to, like, go from, like, Singapore to, like, Egypt. Yeah. And I'm like, that's, like, a 13-hour plane that, ride. Yeah, absolutely. And I've always wanted to see, I noticed said see, not make, a movie about the spy on that plane ride. Right, right. Like, you know, like, that would be a really weird situation to be oh, yeah. in. You know what Very I mean? Very much. So, like, like, that, so this is kind of that, in a way. Yeah. But to the to the weirder idea, um, the more that she starts to realize, the more she can accept mm-hmm. of what's going on in her situation, sure, and handle it. Yeah. So like, once she's finally at a place where she can handle things, that's when shit goes wild. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, because now now she's ready to handle it. Yeah. And there's there's a sequence in the film. This is a once upon a time in Hollywood, I guess, puzzle piece. But okay. I didn't even think of it. Um, you know, Rick Dalton watches his own movies or whatever, his yeah. own shows. In the movie, her ex-boyfriend, who she has a lot of resentment toward, is a, is a television actor who's like a day player. And he has these tapes with all of his scenes, mm-hmm. like from shows. And he comes home and they finally have a confrontation, the, the, the argument they needed to have two years ago when they broke up, if you will. Right. right. And she learns to forgive him in a way. Because his life is not... You know, she tells him, like, I can't understand why you go through what you go through for this life. You know, yeah. you're so much better than being Batman's punching bag, you know? But she watches his clips. And see, this is kind of the problem for me, David, is that, like, <laughs> the clips are so important mm-hmm. to the movie, but some people are just like, oh, so we pause the movie for five minutes so she can watch scenes from other shows? Right. But, like, for example, there's the scene, the, the final, we show clips from, like, shows like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Roseanne, and Unsolved Mysteries with a certain voiceover appearance. Sure, um, sure. But then there's Twin Peaks, and in the scene, her ex-boyfriend is, uh, the Twin Peaks scene, her ex-boyfriend is playing a, a doctor, like in the morgue, mm. with Cooper. And, and uh, Cooper says to Miller, her boyfriend, the doctor, he says, no matter how mundane your job may seem, we couldn't have done it without you, right? Mm. And that was my way of saying to the Miller character, like, dude, even though he never made it, you know, in the real world as a big actor, he was a part of things that really matter, mm. right? So that's part of it for his character. Now, also for Natasha's character, right after he, right when Cooper says that to Miller in the scene, he then turns and says, Jordan, I think this case is about to break wide open. Mm. So we now are relating that that's Natasha's sentiment about Miller. She understands Miller's and now, together. now that the case is about to break wide open, what happens next? The movie begins. The sure. guy comes in and it becomes the movie again. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's, it, maybe it's a little too subtle right now mm-hmm. in a way. But if I had $3 million to make this movie mm-hmm. and nothing seemed like a mistake or a compromise up to that point, I think people would just be more in tune with the movie in general. Mm. You know what I mean? And, sure. and and those things wouldn't matter. Yeah. Well, by the way, to that uh, the ex-boyfriend character, there's something about him and his whole monologue with Batman and everything that reminded me a little bit of uh, Alfred Molina in Boogie Nights, that whole scene. God bless you for that. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's kind of the holy grail of scenes. That's such a great scene. It really and, is. And in your movie, it's, that's a great scene in the movie, I thought. Thank you. I, I really appreciate you saying that, because that scene... Um, that was a, I worked with that guy and I wrote the, I wrote the part for somebody else and that the person I wrote it for politely declined because of COVID, you know what I mean? Like, mm. And that's absolutely. Sure. But this guy, he was actually, his name is Russ and he was, he was going to be moving like in two weeks. And so we got him literally right before he left LA to move to like North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And uh, that scene was the first thing we shot because he, because he was moving. So we shot this movie three days a week. For seven weeks. Yeah. And uh, which is crazy because my movies I shoot in 10 days. This one was like 25 by the end of it with pickups. Yeah. But we shot for three days. We shot that whole sequence from when he comes home with his uh, boyfriend, the agent, Mm -hmm. all the way through when Natasha and him are like singing in the room. Yeah. Right. It's like 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah. And we pieced that stuff together and that, that week. And I was like, dude, we have a movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I, I actually sent that scene to Elliot Gould. <laughs> and Elliot Gould saw that, and he was like, you, you, I want to be a part of this somehow. I, you know what I mean? Like, nice. like that, that scene really... That, and it was good we had that, because times got really tough making this movie. I'm sure. But that sequence, being not only being a good sequence, but 20 minutes. We have 20-minute evidence that what we're doing is working. Right, right. You know, it really helped us 
get through a lot of stuff. And that that Alfred Molina scene, that's I'm that that means a lot that like it even just came to mind for yeah. you because that scene really is like you know people call me a contrarian, but it's like nah, dude, I'm just like I'm I'm just honest. Yeah, and and that's a scene that universally across the board, everyone's like that's one of the greatest scenes of all time, and they're right, right, right. You know what I mean? And it's the perfect ending. Yeah, it's the perfect ending. Maybe if our movie ended five minutes after that scene, like 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 in Boogie Nights, who knows? But we, we still got like twenty minutes to go. Yeah. I only got a couple other questions here, but uh, one of them we, that we haven't really touched on yet. Uh, this being set in nineteen ninety, I mean, obviously phones being a big part of this, VHS tapes are are those some of the main reasons for that? Or are there other reasons that you had in mind for the nineties? Yeah. Well, you know, everybody was making movies about the pandemic at the time because all you, we were all stuck inside. You know what I mean? We were we were making movies about like being stuck inside during sure. a pandemic. And to me, like I understood that, but I was like, we have a much greater opportunity than to just address what's going on right now. We have an opportunity to address what's wrong with us. Mm-hmm. Us meaning us as individuals, sure, not us as a collective. You know, we can actually use this time to explore because we have no options. Yeah, but with the internet and with you know, we have this interconnectivity that we think is a real connectivity, which isn't connectivity. Mm-hmm. So, I wanted to make a movie about what we were all feeling and going through, but without the um, timestamp of twenty twenty one, and setting it in the nineties. Natasha is stuck; mm-hmm. she doesn't have a cell phone. She, she has to go somewhere where there is a phone that she can be reached by that no one would think to find her. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So she's stuck in this little island, and that's why she has to confront everything. Well, any particular reason the 90s versus, say, the 80s or something? I, obviously, this kind of story, maybe you wouldn't want to do earlier than that, 50s or 60s or something, but 80s versus 90s. Um, I got I to gotta be totally honest. Um. Mm-hmm kind of the main reason there's there's one semi reason which is that like this was the very last time when that was a thing mm. because the birth of cell phones becoming like a popular thing sure was sure really important to me because if you notice the phone the phone lineage in this movie first phone you see you're using is a payphone which has a, a, a you know a two-foot cord mm-hmm. that she can't get away from then when she gets to her apartment she has a phone with a really long cord right so she can walk all around her apartment then she gets a phone at Miller's house that has no cord and she can go anywhere in the house. With right, her. right. Then she gets a cell phone for act three. Sure. And she can leave. But but she finds that once she's got it, it's nothing but a nuisance and sure. gets her into trouble. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, like all the worst information comes over that phone. You That's know? cool. I like that. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. But really the other main reason is because um, maybe the biggest puzzle piece of them all mm. is the adventures of Ford Fairlane. Oh, okay. The Andrew Dice Clay, 1990 <laughs> Andrew Dice Clay rock and roll detective movie. Okay, all right. Um, and, uh, <laughs> um, uh, he, you know, th- have you seen that film? I, I don't think so. He's a detective for, for rock stars. That sounds specific- amazing. It's incredible, but he himself is kind of like, you know, a, a, a closeted rock star. Like, uh-huh. you know, he's always playing his awesome guitar that Jimi Hendrix gave him, you know, and like, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's just a wild, and he's, you know, the Dice persona is just unbelievably great. When when I told Kat we were going to make the movie, I made her a homework book mm. with a bunch of movies in it. Yeah. Some direct references, some like a little more obscure, you know, and one of them was The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, and that was like kind of the one she took to the most. Yeah. And she asked, why did you put this one in there specifically? You know, because we would talk about it afterward. And I told her, I have it in my mind that this is the last movie Natasha saw. And that she like, it was like raining. It was like playing at the Dollar Theater. And she literally was getting out of the rain. She's the only person in the theater. Yeah, yeah. And she hadn't even heard of this movie. And she's like, this movie's pretty fucking funny. You're right. You know? And uh, so in the movie, I didn't tell her to do this. But Kat was like adding little dicisms into the movie because her character has it on the brain. Like, right. you hear at one point she's like she's like she brought her groceries oh combustionable which is a line from the movie or when miller mentions michael keaton she goes michael keaton oh i fucked them you know like um that was that was kind of the main you know like that was that was the, the spark of the idea and right now yeah. on, on my wall i have my natasha hall poster in my office right next to my Ford Fairlane poster, amazing. you know? Amazing. I feel bad, though, because I meant to mention when we were talking about artists and, and detectives, there's a television series that John Cassavetes starred in that he used the money for to make his first independent film, which is a show called Johnny Staccato. 
Okay. Which is about a jazz musician detective. Okay. So every episode's him in a nightclub playing jazz with his friends, and he gets approached, you know, and like, I just want to make sure that I do a shout out to Johnny Staccato. Sure. My boy Cassavetes, and it's a brilliant television series. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think that kind of we, we kind of covered a lot of stuff here uh, along the way. Are there any other uh, major inspirations that we kind of didn't talk about uh, that you kind of had in mind? Yeah, uh, real. I mean, real. I mean, another one you can't help but you know address is Big Lebowski. Sure, like yeah. the Shaggy Detective. I call yeah. it the reluctant detective genre. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, that I mean that's obviously you know you get to play these colorful characters like Rick the neighbor, who's. Yeah. You know, I, I had that wrapped up with Inherent Vice, by the way. But yeah, I'm yeah, on my yeah. List here. Inherent Vice, The Big Lebowski, and The Long Goodbye are all kind of the same movie. Sure, you know, in a spiritual sense. Yeah. Um, also, Whoopi Goldberg's The Telephone. And really okay. just Whoopi Goldberg's career in the 80s. Because, have you heard of The Telephone? I, I kind of remember it, maybe the poster, but I don't, I've definitely never seen it. It's directed by Rip Torn. Oh, wow. And it, it's almost the entire movie is improvised and it's Whoopi Goldberg on a phone. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? And, and, now, okay. and Whoopi Goldberg made a lot of really rad movies in the 80s like that nobody talks about. Um, what was it called? Fatal Beauty, where she's a detective trying to solve like these murders. And then there's also a movie called Burglar. With her, where she's a cat burglar, and her best friend is Bobcat Goldthwait, and she gets framed for murder. Fantastic. Like, like Whoopi Goldberg, it's funny, Whoopi Goldberg is probably who I would have cast to play Natasha Hall. Right. You right. know what I mean? Like <laughs> like in that era, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Actually, when, when I made the movie, with, I told Kat, she, it was like, if we made this movie in 1990, who would you cast? And I was like, either Sandra Bullock or Lily Taylor. Mm. That was kind of, you okay. know. But then there's also like Rio Bravo. Mm. is a huge influence because it's about like being stuck at one place and thinking the whole world is collapsing on you but then that world ends up actually opening up and people support you in defeating your enemy mm. like Haley Fawn like Bobby like you just have to trust these people you know yeah. issues of trust but those are i mean yeah that's i mean those are like the main main influences in this weird little Natasha Hall soup yeah I yes guess. for sure well, I, yeah, I think I think we we pretty much got to most of it. I, I the only other thing I would ask you, I guess, is uh, for, from obviously this was all encapsulated within the time of pandemic America. You know, like was was there anything that you started to kind of come up with for this that then you were like, eh, maybe I'll pull back on that because of the times and because of you know the situation we're stuck in right now. Um, the exact opposite. Yeah. Like, like the, I think that the problem is that we keep pulling our punches. Mm. Creators, you know, yeah. and artists, like we keep pulling our punches. Yeah. And I'm partly like, it, part of it is that like people on my level pull their punches because you don't want to offend anybody's sensibilities. You know mm. what I mean? But I think it's actually a gift in a way. Yeah. Because we can do whatever we want. Sure. Nobody's telling us, oh, you can't do that. There are no mandates coming down being like, oh, you can't, you know. So, like, for example, Natasha uses some, like, non-PC slurs sure, yeah. in this movie that, and that was interesting that one of them got a really big laugh yeah, last night. Yeah, I noticed that. And it's because, I think it's because, uh, you know, oh, you're gonna, you're gonna love this. <laughs> Somebody tagged me on something in Facebook the other day where Ben Affleck's daughter was talking about how Geely mm-hmm. is ableist and mm. sick and, like, offensive and blah, blah, blah. Mm. They tag me, they're like, oh, Joe Black, you know, because I, I, I do like that movie. Yeah. But I like that movie in that way that, like, they tried for something and it, they came so close, you know right. what I mean? And, but I, I commented on there, I said, I am not impressed or amused by this current generation's inability to contextualize. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, 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 it, and that's, you know, in 1990, the things that Natasha says they would have just rolled off of anyone's back. Of course. You yeah. know what I mean? And in ni- because partly in 1990, yes, of course, there were certain things that we didn't, we, we weren't as aware. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The, absolutely. But also in 1990, you had to be able to contextualize more. So instinctively, I think people contextualized each other. Yeah. You know, more. Yeah. So like she says these things and we know where it's coming from. Yeah. You know, what I mean? and we know where it's going. Yeah. Y- you know what I mean? So, and, and again, with the pandemic, I found, you know, you got Gal Gadot singing Imagine, you know what I mean? And you've got Anne Hathaway and Shutella Geo 4 making a little independent pandemic movie. Mm-hmm. And it's like, 
get out of here, man. We are hurting. Right. We're hurting so bad that we have an opportunity to not fucking work for a year. Mm-hmm. And all we're doing with it is baking. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, like, like that's, that's how much we're hurting right now. Yeah. So like, let's, let's, let's have Natasha hurt for everybody. Yeah. In a way. Let, let's have her do the tough fucking work. Let's have her hate herself. Let's have her literally shooting herself in her own fantasies. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And like, and let's put a knife in the hands of little girls. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Well, sure. you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, like and, and talk about, and, and like, you know, that whole thing with like, sometimes you need to, in her story within a story, her character Switchblade 2 ends by giving a knife to a little girl. Yeah. And she says, every little girl should have a knife. Sometimes you need one. And it cuts to Natasha. Sometimes you need a big fucking knife. Yeah, yeah. Then it cuts to this giant knife that was used to slash this woman's throat. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a funny moment, you know, because of the cut. But also then you see, like, the woman's holding, like, bloody paper towels in her hands, just, like, doing her Lamaze breathing, you know. Yeah. But also, I didn't have to hold back in a way where I didn't have to lean into the plot. Yeah. People were a little more open to the idea of a movie about somebody stuck somewhere, yeah. right? So... The one philosophy, this is actually a decent thing to sign out on. It, the, the one philosophy that I have that I like to subscribe to, because I think there are no rules of cinema, just tools, as they say. Mm. But one tool I love is that having your opening image juxtapose your final image mm-hmm. so that people can understand that they've been somewhere, that they've gone in some kind of you know journey. Yeah. And the opening shot of this movie is what? Do you remember? She's in the car, I know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And what is she doing? She's uh, on her way to the stakeout, right? No, she's at the stakeout. Oh, she's already there. She's parked, okay. and she's singing into this microphone. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's trying singing. to out yeah. these different melodies, yeah. right? Yeah. What's the last shot of the movie? She's heading to the hospital with the girl, and she's singing to her. She has the melody, right? Yeah. Now, what's, what's kind of magical realism about the last shot? I mean, I would imagine that the song came from everything that she's been through at this point. Close enough. I okay. meant more on a technical level, but oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> that the background, we do a lot of driving in this movie, actually, but the background in that sequence is artificial. Right. Superimposed or, right, or right. double. Now, we've done that in the in the Switchblade Sue sequence, because it looks like, because the Switchblade Sue is supposed to be like a 50s greaser character. You see in Natasha's imagination, it looks like 50s rear projection driving. Yeah. So at the end of this movie, Natasha... We have the 50s rear projection driving for her going to this. And it's because literally at the beginning of the movie, Natasha is stuck. Mm. She's literally in a parked car going nowhere, mm-hmm. singing the song, stuffing her face full of fast foods, which is an old Woody Allen joke where he's like, <laughs> where, how did the country get so stupid? My, uh, uh, my guess is fast foods. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's literally stuffing a burger down her face, trying to find this melody, sitting there, mm-hmm. observing things. And at the end of the movie, she's in the car with someone else holding hands on her journey somewhere about to give new life because the girl's having a baby, right? Yeah, yeah. Helping bring new life into the world. But I didn't want people to think that the movie was plot-driven, so the background is Natasha Hall's mindset. Yeah. So, like, we understand, like, well, maybe you don't understand, but, like, the, the idea is that she's moved on. Mm-hmm. And now that she's moved on, not only is she able to reconnect with people again, holding the girl's hand, but she also is able to help bring new life into the world by singing her this song and calming her down and getting her to the hospital. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, and you can't do that like necessarily like if you're, you know, trying to think of plot. I don't know. Like, it, Yeah, it, it's it, got to it, be one, one thing. So the pandemic allowed us to, allowed me, I won't say to indulge, but rather to only focus on the things that I think are important and sure. the things that matter to me. Yeah. Um, cause there's plenty of scenes in this movie that I can't, like, I don't want to watch that. Like, I don't want to watch Natasha walking through this house. Get me to the next thing. Mm. But Natasha has to walk through the house. You know what I mean? Like yeah. she has to, to it's get part there. of where she's getting. Yeah. Too. So like we got to, like Cassavetti's woman under the influence. He says, there's 40 minutes of that movie that I hate, <laughs> but I have to have them in the movie, you know, right. like, because she's going through it, you know? And that's, and, and that's what the pandemic blessed us with. Interesting. Uh, Production-wise. Not that the pandemic was at all a blessing. No. Yeah, well, like, back to know. the censoring yourself because you don't understand what I mean. Uh, yeah. I have, to, I have to provide the context. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I can't exactly ignore that I was able to finish a whole bunch of new albums and songs and everything because I was able to stay home all the time because of the pandemic. So, you know, you kind of got to acknowledge some of the positives. You well, know? you have to. You have to. Yeah. You have to, you have to, you have to. Like... When you're going through the worst thing ever, yeah. all you can do is persevere yeah. 
and then honor the perseverance. Yeah. You know what right. I mean? Like, and that's the difference between like a Spielberg movie, which is supposed to inspire hope, mm. which when my wife, first time we ever sat down to have a conversation, she talked about the problem with the world is people smoking the hopium. Mm. And I hated that idea. I hated the idea that hope was a negative thing. Yeah. Like we battled about it, but I finally understood what she meant. Mm. Once I, you know, that like, it's about inspiring perseverance. Right. You know what I mean? Like, to persevere is to be human. So, mm. Well, Joe, I think, uh, I think we got to a lot of good stuff in this conversation. Is there anything else you wanted to, like, kind of throw in there to wrap it up? Or, or do you think we uh, hit a lot of the points here? You've known me long enough to know that I could just keep going. I'm but sure. It's best to pull my plug when, you know. <laughs> all right, all right. But, but thank you again to Fort Bedlam, and thank you to everybody who's yeah. ever come out to see the movie. And, you know, thanks to like you know elliot gould and people who really have shown their support for this movie and stuff like that it really means a lot it's awesome well and uh, i love my wife yes thank you for such a good performance (laughs) but tell people uh where they can find more about you and the film and everything blue means pregnant films.com that's my my company name blue means pregnant films it's just blue means pregnant films.com i have every one of my movies on there for people to watch for free except for natasha hall because we're trying to actually get this one distributed mm-hmm. but you can watch the trailer there yes um but uh yeah and uh you know on facebook too we have a we have a and and i'm an open book contact me call me you know like tell me you know i i love collaboration i love conversation you know so Please do let me know. Even if you don't like the movie, let's talk about it. Like, I love learning. Kanye West, you can never learn anything from a compliment. You Finishing know? it up with a Kanye West quote. Kanye there and Cassavetes are the same person to me. <laughs> Come on, everybody. Hi, this is Wax Tracks Records here on 2909 South Decatur. We buy all your old 45s, your old albums, any type of music memorabilia. Also, we sell music memorabilia, albums, CDs, and a lot. Come on down to Wax Tracks, 2909 South Decatur, or give me a call at 702-362-4300. Thank you very much. All right, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Joe Black about his new film, Natasha Hall. Make sure to check out Joe's website, Blue Means Pregnant Films, uh, to check out some of his other work, and we will definitely let you know when you are able to watch the full film, Natasha Hall, or if you've already watched it, uh, we hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you enjoyed this conversation. So, uh, yes, as always, I want to thank you all for listening Make sure you're subscribed wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Wherever you just listen to this, click that subscribe button. And if you would be so kind, you could also rate and review us, whether that's on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or Spotify or Good Pods. Or if you happen to be on another app that has a five-star button, click the five stars, and we would really appreciate that. You could also share the show with your friends. Just share, share, share away on any social media or wherever. If you're on some kind of weird backroom message board about movies that would be a good place to tell them about the show so uh just share it around anywhere you'd like to share it you can follow us also on social media at piecing pod join our facebook group popcorn and puzzle pieces where we continue the conversation about all the movies we talk about here on the show and i told you at the top of the show about our patreon the produced by david rosen patreon you could check that out at patreon.com slash by david rosen and we do appreciate anyone who subscribes over there. Uh, But, of course, the main podcast is always free, and just keep listening. And let's close this thing out with a piece of music like we always do. And I'm going to go with something from the soundtrack album Beater that I put out in 2020. Uh, This is the score to a feature film called Beater, as well as pieces of music from short films i did with the director of beater uh chris johnson so a whole bunch of film music that i compiled onto this one album and this piece is a track called unrequited which is actually from a short film called unrequited so the album is beater hope you enjoy the music we'll be back with more piecing it together real soon
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.